2: Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Hello and welcome back to It Could Happen Here. It's me again. It's Shireen. And we're going to continue our discussion of Libya uh, that we started yesterday. And um, yeah, I hope it's been interesting. And I hope it continues to be interesting because I'm not going to stop. Okay, we left off our last episode after we talked about the Oslo Accords, about how a lot of people distrusted and didn't like Yasser Arafat, who was the PLO leader during the Oslo Accords, or the Oslo peace process, rather. Muammar Gaddafi was one of those people that disagreed with signing the Accords because he viewed it as a surrender, as a defeat, And because of this, in 1995, Gaddafi expelled around 30,000 Palestinians in protest at the Oslo Accords between the PLO, aka the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and Israel. So, I do think it's notable to mention that before Oslo, Gaddafi was on good terms with Arafat. In 1992, Arafat was on a plane en route to Tunisia, and he was accompanied by his bodyguards and some assistants. The flight was scheduled to land in the Kharfa Oasis airfield southeast of Libya to refuel. However, intense sandstorms impeded the vision of the pilots who were forced to adjust the flight route. One hour and 40 minutes after takeoff, the control tower in the Libyan capital received the following message. Special flight Khartoum to Tunis cannot land. We fly on to Asara. We will attempt an emergency landing. Five minutes later, the plane disappeared from Libyan radar screens and wireless telecommunications were off. A state of emergency was declared. International media outlets immediately reported that Arafat's plane had disappeared in the Libyan desert. For approximately 15 hours, it was thought that the plane had crashed and that Arafat had died. It turned out, however, that the plane hit a sand dune in the Libyan desert and Arafat was thrown a distance of 30 meters. The two pilots and the mechanic perished in this accident, and all the passengers were found wounded but alive, including Adafat. I bring this up only to mention that I found a photo of Adafat recovering in a hospital after this crash, covered in bandages, and Gaddafi is at his bedside. They're even holding hands in the photo! But that didn't matter to Gaddafi after Oslo, which he viewed again as a sort of betrayal to the Arab world. So, back to 1995, when Gaddafi expels about 30,000 Palestinians in protest of Arafat signing the Oslo Accords. Gaddafi urged other Arab countries to follow his example and send home all Palestinians to expose what he said was Israel's plan to create a Palestinian state in name only. Speaking at a makeshift camp in the desert near the border with Egypt, Gaddafi told a crowd of thousands that his expulsion of thousands of Palestinians was the greatest service to the aims of establishing a Palestinian homeland. In the speech, he said, the Zionist plan is to create a Palestine without Palestinians, he said, adding that other Arab countries are taking part in the Zionist plan by allowing the Palestinians to stay in their land. He very publicly criticized Arifat's signing of the Accords with Israel and handing over authority in the West Bank to the Palestinian Authority. His speech continued, saying, Overnight, they told us that Israel was no longer the enemy we knew. They said the Palestinian cause was over, and because Libya believes them, it has asked the Palestinians to return to their home. So a little bit uh, passive-aggressive there, or maybe overly aggressive. Nonetheless, he disagreed with Oslo Accords and with Arafat, and a lot of other Arab countries did also. In 1999, Gaddafi handed over the two Lockerbie suspects for trial at Camp Zeist in the Netherlands after protracted negotiations and UN sanctions. The UN sanctions were suspended and diplomatic relations with the UK was restored after the suspects were handed over for trial. In January 2001, the Netherlands finds one of the two Libyans accused of the Lockerbie bombing Al Maghrahi guilty and sentences him to life imprisonment. He was freed in 2009 on compassionate release grounds before dying of cancer in 2012. The other suspect, Fahima, is found not guilty and freed after the trial. In January 2002, Libya and the U.S. say they held talks to mend relations after years of hostility over what the Americans termed as Libya's sponsorship of terrorism. A year later, in January 2003, Libya is elected chairman of the U.N. Human Rights Commission, despite opposition from the U.S. and human rights groups. In August of 2003, seven months after this, Gaddafi accepted responsibility for the Lockerbie bombing in a letter to the U.N. Security Council, and Libya signed a deal worth $2.7 billion and paid compensation to the families of the victims, although he maintained that he had never given the order for the attack. Acceptance of responsibility was part of a series of requirements laid out by UN resolution for sanctions against Libya to be lifted. Libya said it had to accept responsibility due to Mehrahi's status as a government employee. In September of 2003, a month later, the UN Security Council votes to lift sanctions, and in December of that same year, Libya said it will abandon programs to develop weapons of mass destruction. At this point, Gaddafi has been in power for many, many decades. And similar to other dictators, he developed a cult of personality and his pictures were seen all over the country with his quotes. Remember the Green Book? Yes, that book. He had been in power for so long and this book was still distributed and praised and he stayed in power like most dictators do. In March of 2004, British Prime Minister Tony Blair visits Libya, and this is the first such visit since 1943. Gaddafi was clearly working on a return to respectability for Libya, and in August of 2004, Libya agreed to pay $35 million to compensate the victims of the bombing in a Berlin nightclub in 1986. We talked about this briefly in our previous episode when I mentioned that in 86, the U.S. bombed Libya and killed 101 people and said that these raids were in response to the alleged Libyan involvement of this bombing of a Berlin Disco that was frequented by U.S. military personnel. Fast forwarding to where we currently are in 2004, Libya has agreed to pay $35 million to compensate these victims. This is a good place to take our first little break. Don't go anywhere. BRB. it just
0: be me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor-Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
1: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity Voice Remote. Like many of us,
4: you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., at lifelock.com news. That's lifelock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
3: Okay, we're back. We're now in January of 2005, and Libya's first auction of oil and gas exploration licenses heralds the return of U.S. energy companies for the first time in more than 20 years. In February of 2006, at least 10 people are killed in clashes with police in Benghazi and part of a wave of international protests by some Muslims who are angered by a Danish newspaper's cartoon depictions of the Prophet Muhammad. Three months later, in May of 2006, the U.S. says it is restoring full diplomatic ties with Libya. And in 2008, a lot of things happened in 2008. First, Libya took over the one-month rotating presidency of the UN Security Council, marking a huge step returning to respectability after decades as a pariah of the West. Libya and the U.S. also signed an agreement committing each side to compensate all victims of bombing attacks on the other citizens. Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi apologizes to Libya for damage inflicted by Italy during the colonial era, and they sign a $5 billion investment deal by way of compensation. U.S. Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, makes a historic visit in 2008, the highest level U.S. official to visit Libya since 1953. Rice says relations between the U.S. and Libya have entered, quote, a new phase. In February of 2009, Gaddafi is elected chairman of the African Union by leaders meeting in Ethiopia. He sets out the ambition of the United States of Africa, even embracing the Caribbean. In June of that year, 2009, Gaddafi pays his first state visit to Italy, Libya's former colonial ruler and trading partner. What a plot twist! Wow, who would have thought a century prior? In 2010, Russia agrees to sell Libya weapons in a deal worth $1.8 billion. The deal is thought to include fighter jets, tanks, and air defense systems. The European Union and Libya sign an agreement designed to slow illegal migration. That same year, British oil company BP confirms it is about to begin drilling off of the Libyan coast. 2011, you start to see the seeds of an anti gaddafi uprising, and Libyans rose up against the rule of Gaddafi and many took up arms. You might know that 2011 marked the beginning of many Arab springs in many countries, including Libya. And I guess this is also a good time to remind you that Gaddafi was always a dictator and ruled with fear, as dictators do. A lot happened in 2011. In February, inspired by revolt in other Arab countries, especially neighboring Egypt and Tunisia, violent protests break out in Benghazi and spread to other cities, leading to escalating clashes between security forces and anti Gaddafi rebels. The government's security forces responded by opening fire on the protesters. As an initially peaceful protest movement transformed into a fully fledged armed uprising against his 42 year rule, Gaddafi pledged to chase down the cockroaches and the rats who had taken up arms against him, quote, inch by inch, room by room, home by home, alleyway by alleyway, person by person. A brutal conflict began, with pro-Gaddafi forces indiscriminately shelling civilian areas, arresting thousands of protesters and others suspected of supporting the opposition, holding many in secret detention, and carrying out summary executions. In March of 2011, the UN Security Council authorizes a no-fly zone over Libya and airstrikes to protect civilians, over which NATO assumes command. In the months that follow, Libyan rebels initially capture territory, but are then forced back by better-armed pro-Gaddafi forces. In July, the International Contact Group on Libya formally recognizes the main opposition group, the National Transitional Council, the NTC, as the legitimate government of Libya. In August of 2011, Gaddafi goes into hiding after rebels swarm into his fortress, compound in Tripoli. Let's take our second break here and we'll come back and talk more about what happened in 2011 because it seems like it's the year that never ended. BRB. BRB.
2: And we're back. So,
3: as I mentioned before the break, in August of 2011, Gaddafi went into hiding after the rebels swarmed his fortress compound in Tripoli. In September, the African Union joins 60 countries which have recognized the NTC as the new Libyan authority. On October 20th, 2011, Gaddafi is captured and killed as rebel fighters take his hometown of Sirte. After airburst bombs are fired from a NATO warplane incinerating dozens of Gaddafi fighters. Gaddafi and other survivors are nearby a walled villa compound, and soon thereafter, they try to escape through the fields and two drainage pipes underneath a major road nearby. That is where the Masrata militaries found them. Uh, Masrata is a city in Libya, by the way. When militia fighters found Gaddafi in his inner circle, hiding next to the drainage pipes, one of his bodyguards threw a hand grenade at them. And this hand grenade bounced off the concrete wall and exploded in the midst of the leadership circle, killing Gaddafi's defense minister, Abu Bakr Yunus. Yes, that actually happened. You had to have been there. This explosion sprayed shrapnel that wounded Gaddafi and others, according to the survivors of the incident whom the Human Rights Watch interviewed. Gaddafi was immediately set upon by Misrata fighters who literally wounded him with a bayonet in his butt and then began pummeling him with kicks and blows. By the time Gaddafi was loaded into an ambulance and transported to Misrata, his body appeared lifeless. It remains unclear whether he died from this violence, the shrapnel wounds, or from being shot later, as some have claimed. Ultimately, he died, is the point. In that same morning of October 20th, Misrata militia members separately apprehended Muammar Gaddafi's son, Mustahim. He was in charge of the military defense of Sirta and had led the doomed convoy, and he tried to flee from the scene of the fighting. Three days later, the NTC declared Libya to be officially liberated, and they announced plans to hold elections within eight months. In November of 2011, Saif al-Islam, the fugitive son of former Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi, is captured, becoming the last key Gaddafi family member to be seized or killed. Between January and March of 2012, clashes erupt between former rebel forces in Benghazi in a sign of discontent with the NTC, The NTC, again, stands for National Transitional Council. So Benghazi-based NTC officials campaign to re-establish autonomy for the region, further increasing tension with the NTC in Tripoli. In August, this transitional government hands power to the General National Congress, which was elected in July. There's still significant unrest among civilians during this time in regards to inept leadership, and in February of 2014, protests erupt in response to the General National Congress's refusal to disband after the decided-upon mandate expires. In May of 2014, the Libyan National Army Renegade General Khalifa Haftar launches a military assault that includes airstrikes against militant Islamist groups in Benghazi, and he tries to seize the parliament building, accusing the prime minister— at the time, Prime Minister Ahmed Maitegh, of being enthralled to Islamist groups. In June, Prime Minister Maitegh resigns after the Supreme Court rules his appointment illegal. A new parliament is chosen in elections, but the election is marred by a low turnout attributed to security fears and boycotts, and the Islamists suffer heavy defeat. Fighting breaks out between forces loyal to the outgoing GNC and the new parliament. In July of 2014, the UN staff pulls out, and the embassy shut down, and foreigners are evacuated as the security situation deteriorates. Among all of this fighting, the Tripoli International Airport is also largely destroyed. Ansar al-Sharia, which was a Salafist Islamist militia and Al-Qaeda-aligned group that advocated for the implementation of Sharia law across Libya, seizes control of most of Benghazi at this time. Later that year, in October of 2014, the UN envoy to Libya, Bernardina Leon, proposed a national unity government for Libya. And this new government was to be led by the presidential council of Fayez el-Saraj as prime minister and three deputies from the country's eastern, western, and southern regions, as well as two ministers. UN Security General Ban Ki-moon visits Libya during this time to continue the UN-brokered talks between the new parliament and the government based in Tarbuk and Islamist Libya DAW militias holding Tripoli. The UN says that hundreds of thousands of civilians are displaced by these clashes. And this takes us to 2015, but I think we're going to stop for today because a lot happens in 2015, and uh, I'd rather not split it up into two, two episodes. So... That's where I'm going to leave you guys for today. And uh, you'll hear me tomorrow if you want to. Goodbye. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening.
1: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on AE Crime Central. Crave Adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Haya. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
3: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career.